0: Welcome to the European Pavilion, a series of podcasts produced by the European Cultural Foundation. I am your host, Laura Gablier. In this podcast, we wish to stimulate a critical and creative debate that challenges prevailing national perspectives and inspires a culture of solidarity. How do people, institutions and the media feel about Europe? How should we imagine our future and the future of Europe? For this episode, we invited three guests to reflect on the model of the Nation-State and what it means today. The Nation-State is generally associated with a sovereign territory where common threats such as language and descent are shared. We chose to start our conversation at an airport a place of greetings and farewells that is also a place where the nation-state materializes with exquisite sophistication. In airport queues, citizenship are sorted in a most disciplined way. But airports are much more than that. They are places of encounter where the intimate meets the global. Two important ideas that will come back later during this episode.
1: Because yes, I'm very, I'm very interested in, in these, kind of, uh, these meeting points, these hubs, um, because I think I'm interested in seeing the world, and I think this is something that characterizes my work from the very beginning, much more as a network than as a mosaic. My name is uh, Rana Gupta. I'm a writer, a novelist, and essayist. Um, and uh, I write fiction and non-fiction about, I suppose, you, what you could loosely call the global system: airports, uh, cities, streets. Um, these are places where where uh, encounters happen, um, not only in 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 physical terms, but also in in of course in terms of culture, philosophy, and the exchange of ideas.
0: The nation-state is a powerful narrative. In a very short period of time, it has managed to establish itself as the dominant and perhaps the only political model. Today, in the face of the challenges posed by our interconnected societies, our global economy and environmental emergencies, the nation-state seems to be running out of steam. Why then? does it still prevail? What is so fascinating about it?
2: It's not surprising that the nation state is an enduring and popular idea because the nation state serves that function of telling us that we are right, we were here first, our story is special, we are innocent, and so on. My name is Timothy Snyder. I'm a historian of Europe. I teach at Yale University in the United States, um, and I am often at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna.
3: I'm Lara García Díaz, and I'm a researcher in the University of Antwerp and in the Antwerp Research Institute for the Arts, and I'm part of the Cultural Commons Quest Office. So for me, maybe like I would not go so much into what you just said about what is so fascinating about the model of the nation-state, but rather maybe I would like to go into the relationship between post-national imaginaries and the process of cultural homogenization, this idea of uh, the assimilation of strict monolingualism. So many minority languages have reached the brink of extinction and thus with entire systems of cultural knowledge. Like was disappear in the name of a unique and united nation-state. No this idea of you said precisely of this idea of sacred nation-state, which is homogeneous and that is one and united. To maybe go back to your question, I think the challenges for me lies today is in breaking this idea of the sacred status of the nation-state and challenging homogenization.
2: I guess I would, I would phrase it a little bit more radically than you did in your question. For, for me, the, the nation state has pretty much always been a fiction. It's very hard to find an example of a nation state which has really done well on its own. The world has always been such that groups can only thrive if they're in some kind of interaction with a, a larger world. I think the real trick is how you shift from an imperial to a non-imperial form of interaction.
0: If the nation-state manifests itself in passport control, it is also ingrained in our psyches as well as in our cultures. A timeless myth that did not happen overnight. As Rana Daskupta reminds us, the nation-state is a cultural and educational venture that has shaped the world order from the end of empire to the present day.
1: Why is it so difficult for us to imagine ourselves outside of the nation-state? If we think of the volume of 20th century resources that were put into promoting the nation state. In, in Europe, let's think of the amount of 19th century resources that were put into uh, promoting the nation state. Think of the sacred nature of, of national iconography in music, in art, in literature. Think of the uh, extraordinary efforts that were that went into creating for the European countries a national history and national literature—it's all the sorts of things with which nineteenth-century scientists and cultural uh, scholars constituted the nation state. And then, in the in the in the post-colonial world, the enormous efforts that went into creating a post-colonial sense of national identity—what um, it meant suddenly to be from Iraq or Somalia or Pakistan—any of these countries that. Um, had only very sketchy histories as nation states in the past and had had a very tragic experience of the nation states under European empire in many cases. If we think about all that reason all those resources that were targeted at citizens through huge education programs propaganda primary education singing national anthems learning about national heroes this is an enormous enormous project and clearly we are very affected by it.
0: It is undeniable that a nation state has produced powerful imaginaries. It has awakened a sense of belonging that connects us to something that we perceive as fundamental. But our world is also evolving in a rapidly changing context. New empires have been rising in the form of multinationals and financial institutions. These ungrounded entities, as we'd like to call them, operate across borders, overruling grounded entities such as nations, parliaments or tax offices.
1: Globalisation, which is not just a process of the last four decades, though obviously um, the last four decades have been particularly intense, Um, globalisation is to some extent a process of several centuries. But globalisation has taken a form which has led right now especially by finance and technology and so when we think of finance and technology uh, we think of the forms that capital has taken we think of the, the fact that people can buy the same product in so many countries or we think of technology we think of the ways in which we are connected through technological means and one of the problems that we face today is that politics has simply not got anything to say about that uh, politics remains rigidly national. When we talk about politics, we basically mean participation in in a in a in a national administrative system. If I wish to participate in the world financially or technologically, I'm completely unbounded. But as soon as I wish to participate in the world uh, politically, um, there's very little I can do to vote in another country's election. So. In this sense, I think um, politics has to sort of catch up with the amazing but also very violent achievements of technology and finance over the last few decades.
2: Insofar as states are going to survive in a world of what you're calling ungrounded entities, and in a world which I agree features new kinds of empire, new kinds of imperialism, states have to be strong. And I think in Europe the confusion is about what a strong state is. It makes no sense for Austria or France even to imagine that they that those that their states would be stronger without the European Union. Their states are stronger because of the European Union. And if we think about the the entities which are most powerful in the world today, the non territorial ones, for me those would be. Those would be the large um, social media companies, or those would be the large internet companies, um, entities like Amazon or or Facebook or Google. And no, no territorial state alone is going to deal with those entities. Austria, Britain, France are going to have a hard time dealing with those entities. But something larger like the European Union can deal with those entities. And in that sense, the European Union, if it works right, is not only a post-imperial project it's also an anti-imperial project because it's it's creating a kind of cushion around europeans from these new kinds of non-territorial imperial aspirations data is said to be the new oil or the gold of the digital society an overstatement certainly not the EU's the digital waves in, that in favor
0: over of an austrian system.
1: law student who claims that a transatlantic data transfer to new data protection regulation With
0: the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, which was introduced in 2018, Europe launched the most ambitious legislation on the access and use of personal data. This is an important step that reinforces the idea of Europe as a safe space, or, as Lara Garcia Diaz proposes, a space of possibility.
3: Uh, Europe... um I think for me it brings the possibility to really embrace all the things that we are just talking about. I think it's a structure that can go on one way or the other or can go in many different ways. But I think it has the possibility and I think it has the administrative structure to really rethink how to connect this idea of local and global we used to think about these things on, on terms of space, or you know, like um, the, glo- the local and the global, but I also think about it in terms of rhythms. So for instance, the immediacy of grounded politics or the need for immediate effectiveness versus the heavy and slow administrative machinery characteristic of institutions. So for me, I think likewise important is to think, if possible, can we tune these two tempos uh, and accommodating these two rhythms of operation? Where is the middle point where, yeah, the local and the global can meet, but also in the way we are working and the rhythms and the needs and how effective can we, can we combine these two rhythms? How to create a space big as Europe in which diversity is embraced. So, and I'm not thinking here on multiculturalism because we saw that multiculturalism is also like another trap.
0: A trap? But what do you mean?
3: For me, it's based on an identity on, ident- on an identity policy that takes harmony and consensus too easily for granted. So as if multiculturalism would be a form that we can all sit together and you know and arrive to a consensus. And and I think for me. Um, when we talk about diversity, when we, co- we talk about including voices and other, the diversity of bodies, although it sounds really utopic and, and really nice, it's also really hard. And I think there will be this census, there will be a lot of struggles, but I think this is precisely what we need to put in the centre.
0: And yet, so far, the trend remains towards consensus. And today, one of the most controversial and least discussed consensus is reflected in the extreme economic disparity between different regions of the world. For Rana Daskupta, this is a dimension that needs to be addressed.
1: The fact that Europe has become a club of uh, rather wealthy nations seeking to defend themselves against the much, much poorer nations and more conflicted nations Uh, on the other side of the, the Mediterranean, gives Europe a slightly, an extremely sinister and ugly situation in the contemporary world order. And I think that one of the big tasks that would confront any kind of attempt at a supranational political identity would be, would be that it it would have to confront the problem of ethical relationships between the rich and the poor of the world. To me, this is the big unaddressed question in the, in the contemporary status quo. The fact is that the rich country, the rich regions and poor regions of the world, with the exception of of China especially, have not really changed very much in the last century. And the post-Second World War world order was designed really to maintain Western Europe, Japan, and of course, America as the economic centers of the world, and to maintain essentially neo-imperial relationships of economic extraction. Um, So to me, a Europe that wants to take up a, a reformist, let's say, even interesting political position in the world must solve this problem of how it's possible to actualize in political terms, the relationships that clearly already exist in economic terms, between the richest and the poorest people on the planet. How is it possible for rich countries to take some sort of ownership of and responsibility for the networks, the economic and technological networks that they have um, imposed on the entire world, and to try and use those to um, equalize the legal and economic conditions of the 7 billion people on the planet.
3: I think responsibility is a concept for me, it's a really interesting concept precisely because it's really multi-layered. So depending on the angles and the perspectives that you are using uh, to embrace it or to, or to tackle it, it can really change and it opens uh, uh, really interesting fields.
0: For Lara garcia Diaz, responsibility is something to be negotiated, a delicate balance.
3: For instance, how can I be responsible towards the other without imposing my will? For me, it's always the question is, why is that the one that is being responsible always think that knows better what the other needs? So, you know, then we have this connection or we could go into this connection into this idea of nationalism, homogenization and almost militarization and all in the name of responsibility. You know, it's my responsibility to protect you and so that's the way I do it. But what if we shift this idea of responsibility how can i meet my responsibility towards the other understanding that the other is multiple and diverse and that the way of uh, of practicing responsibility it's not in connection to patronizing or it's not in connection on imposing something nowadays we have to be really conscious about our privileges i think it's really useful a concept from Joan uh, Joan Tronto. She's a care ethicist from United States and she talks about privilege and responsibility. And I think it's a a really nice one because uh, it unites precisely this idea of privilege and then responsibility and how sometimes it's not a matter of that we are inattentive or that, you know, it's just a matter of really embracing your own privileges and being responsible for that. Because when we are not doing that, is an irresponsibility, and it's a conscious irresponsibility. We have enough of saying, "Ah, okay, yeah, I I didn't, I didn't recognize it," or you know, because it's not a matter of an an attentiveness; it's a matter of you know to really be responsible and how interact with the other. So again, it's a matter of like, where am I, and where is the other, and trying to create other relational practices based not on justice which is uh, i guess like the nation state nowadays operates on this idea of justice all the all the time but rather thinking on other terms for instance i don't know care empathy solidarity responsibility etc etc
0: politics is not only a matter of law as we discussed earlier in this episode a political project such as a nation state cannot exist without culture and affect and indeed without care. The difficulty of the nation-state in responding to today's global problems is leading to political disaffection, and this is reflected in growing skepticism towards the European project or shared vision for the future. For Timothy Snyder, this is a paradox.
2: So, I I mean, the way I think the European Union has to work emotionally, Is I mean, to first make the point, which I think has to be made because it's true, that the European Union enables the nations and doesn't disable them, which I think is just historically, I mean, just unanswerably true. The reason why there are so many prospering, um, interesting, mutually competing European cultures now. Is that Europe had a place to go after empire, and that place was integration. So I think Europe is not against the nations. Europe is the thing which actually makes the nations possible.
0: Still, how to get excited about Europe?
2: You can be excited about Europe because people care about basic ideals, which means. It, which means, you know, historically you can look back at the French resistance or at the Right Rose movement in Germany, but it also means that one, one can be inspired by solidarity in Poland, or by Serbs in the year 2000, or by Ukrainians in 2014, or by Belarusians now. If, you know, Europeans have to be able to say, aha, you know, here are people who are willing to take risks for basic values, which we always have been saying that That we share. And I think without that appreciation of the risk taking, um, it's hard to have a European project that that moves forward. So it really, like this last question hooks into a lot of the things you were asking about, because unless Europeans appreciate risk taking, unless they appreciate that the values that they have aren't just automatically given, um, but that they, that people actually, people might care about them enough to actually take risks for them. If, if you don't appreciate that, then, then you're losing the vitality of your own project.
1: It's very important for us politically to develop forms of political belonging that um, provide alternatives to the nation state at both a smaller and a larger scale. Political identities that can focus on regions and cities, as well as uh, on continents. The reason I think that's important is that I think that our nation states are going to become much more volatile and fragile uh, over the decades to come in both the rich world and especially the poor world. And I think that to prevent enormous chaos, it's good if the collapse of a nation state does not mean the collapse of all kinds of political belonging. I think
2: Europe has to have, you know, it has to have this idea that we're we're the ones who are keeping the European nations going. It has to have the idea we're the ones who are making the future possible because we can handle the things that you are anxious about, right? But beyond all of that, it has to have a subjective component, which says Europe is a place where you can grow up. Europe is a place where you can have a family. Europe is a place where you can have an adventure. Europe is a place where unpredictable things happen. And it's that it's that subjective side which is which is, which seems very strongly to be to be to be missing.
0: Indeed, the importance of taking risks cannot be ignored. It reminds us of the fact that any political project is always a work in progress, and that social achievement can never be taken for granted. The sense of belonging also rests on the collective promises that are made. And the way they are implemented, I asked Rana Das which promises underpin the European project. For him,
1: this question brings about issues of citizenship. So you were asking earlier about the promise. What kind of promise does a does a nation state make to its citizens? Well, I think in in post-war Europe, for instance, and to some extent post-war America, the state made fairly extravagant promises to citizens in all areas of life. So the state promised to deliver quite significant political rights to citizens, not only democratic participation, but also legal protections um, and protections of, of political opinion, political organization, all those kinds of things. It made enormous, unprecedented kinds of, of material promises, economic promises. Uh, About uh, economic security, benefits, healthcare, education, all those sorts of things. And it even made spiritual promises. The European state promised to um, provide a sort of spiritual education to citizens, culture, education, etc., etc., museums, philosophy. The European state has had to gradually withdraw many of these promises um, over the last few decades, as has the American. And to a great extent, um, national leaders all over the world are trying to, to convince their citizens that their citizenship is worth more than it is by a number of different methods. You know, one is by denying it to more and more people, stopping immigration, promising to remove citizenship from certain kinds of people so that citizenship appears more valuable. Because it's very clear that despite the very democratic and egalitarian language we use to describe, for instance, the United Nations, that certain kinds of citizenship are worth much less than others. And a lot of the chaos today is about the, the value, the, the comparative value of different forms of citizenship.
2: Um, another way to come at it is the negative way to come at it is to look at the problem of of, of refugees, which I think you're suggesting, and also the problem problem of mass killing and, and the Holocaust. Hannah Arendt wrote a very important text called We Refugees in 1943, in which she made the point that this all begins when people no longer have state protection. And that's a very simple point, but it's a very profound point. And it's an essential point of European history, as I understand European history, The greatest the greatest tragedies, the greatest the greatest episodes of mass killing in Europe, including the Holocaust, happen when people are separated from state protection. And that leads us or they're separated from a state completely. And this leads us back to your point, because it means that you have to have some form of law or some idea of human rights, which isn't which isn't historically contingent upon a passport. Or which isn't historically contingent even upon the existence of a state.
0: Our guest seems to agree on one thing any discussion of a possible scenario beyond the nation state has to address citizenship. We have to look at how resources and rights are settled and distributed, and to do so, we will first have to acknowledge what exactly is at stake in the current model of citizenship. This will be the topic of our next episode, which will once again brings together our guests, Rana Dasgupta, Lara Garcia Diaz, and Timothy Snyder. In this second episode, we will also reflect on the role that the idea of a European pavilion can play. Eventually, we will leave the airport behind, casting off the confines of the passport, to enter a space of radical imagination.